The scripture reading for today is taken from the book of John, um, chapter 10, verse 22 to 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given, given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, ma'am. So, have you guys... Oh, I forgot the cell phone. Sorry. I'll bring it down later. Have you guys ever been in a really long argument with somebody, and you kind of go around and around and around, and you kind of go into these different tangents, and the argument just kind of gets everywhere. You don't even know how it started. And then all of a sudden, at the very tail end of the argument, you finally realize what it's all about. And you finally realize, oh... This is what it was about. And what you realize what it was about actually has nothing to do with what, where the argument went in the beginning. You ever had that? Married couples are like, mm-hmm. Uh, so a funny story, uh, and I asked Tati to share, if I can share this, she gave me permission to. So when we lived in Orlando, and we, we wanted to decide where to eat. Husbands, if your wife tells you it's up to you, don't believe it. It's a trap. Um, that's what she said. It's up to you, babe. So I said, okay, let's go to this one um, Chinese restaurant that we like that's down the road. And then she said, ah, I don't know. That's, that's a, bit too, it's a bit pricey. And I was like, you just told me I could decide. And then we got into this argument, long argument. Finally, we're like, okay, fine. It's too expensive. Okay, where do you want to go? And she chooses this Thai restaurant that's even more expensive. I'm like, hold on, uh-uh, wait a minute. You told me the reason why you don't want this is because it was too expensive. But you choose another one. Anyways, we're done, we're over now. I'm not mad anymore. Um, <laughs> or maybe, you know, your kid uh, doesn't want to go to school and they claim that they have a stomach ache. And that's their reasoning. But then after a long series of arguments and discussion, you realize, oh, actually, I don't think, I don't think it's actually about a stomach ache. I think it's about something else. Well, in a sense, that's kind of what we see in our passage today. 
we see that this passage is the tail end of a long series of arguments that Jesus has had with the Pharisees. The, 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 he had a bunch of arguments, but with this one series started in chapter 8, and it ended here in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10. And finally, at the very tail end of the argument, we finally get down to it. We finally find out what is the real reason that the Pharisees were so resistant to Jesus' claims about being the Messiah, to Jesus' claims about being God who has come down in flesh to save us. And we find out that the reason isn't what they originally or throughout the argument presented it to be. The whole time they were saying, you know, it's a lack of evidence. It's theologically inconsistent with the Old Testament. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. It's irrational reasoning. And finally, at the tail end of the argument, we see what it's actually about. And it's actually about something much deeper, something much more subjectively personal. And this is unbelievably relevant for us today because if you're here and, and you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing is, who this Jesus is, what the Bible is all about. At the end of the sermon, you may not believe or receive Jesus' claims about who he is, but I hope that after we study the passage, at the very least, you might, you might just consider, perhaps, perhaps a part or a big part of the reason for your disbelief has to do more with just empirical evidences, has to do more with just objective logical reasoning. They're, just consider that it might be something more subjective, more. But if you're here today and you already trust Jesus Christ and his claims as God who has come down in flesh to die for your sins, I pray and hope that you grow in your faith as we see just how intricately Jesus God has planned your salvation and how he's left no part of it up to chance. And I pray that in this you may grow and I may grow and we may grow in our heart toward him and toward a life of obedience to him. All right, there's four things I want to point out from the passage. One, the way we approach Jesus' claim. Two, the divine claim that Jesus made. Three, the way we often react to Jesus' claim. And four, the cross through which Jesus prevails. The way we approach Jesus' claims, the, the divine claim that Jesus made, the way we often react to Jesus' claim, and the cross through which Jesus prevails. All right, point number one, the way we approach Jesus' claim. So our passage starts off with giving us a time and a place of where this climactic confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus happened, right? So first, note the time. John says, at the Feast of Dedication, and two, note the place. It was at the temple. Now, these two things will be significant later, and I'll connect it back later. But for now, just let me tell you the meaning of the Feast of Dedication and also the significance of the temple. All right, stick with me if you would. The Feast of Dedication is a celebration that would last for eight days. And it's meant to celebrate uh, Israel's past heroes. But mainly, there's one hero that is held more memorable over the others in this particular feast, and that guy is Judas the Hammer. That's his name. What did he do? He was given the nickname Judas the Hammer because he defeated a Syrian king named Antiochus, who in 165 BC took over Israel. King Antiochus took over Israel, and one of the things that he did after when he took over Israel was that he insulted the temple. He took a pig, and he killed a pig on the altar of the temple. And that was an insult. The Jews got really mad. Uh, uh, Judas... 
the hammer, uh, Judas Maccabeus, I think is his real name, uh, came up and raised some people to fight against King Antiochus, and he succeeded. He won, and he beat them. And it was so offensive for them because you know that the temple is, in the Old Testament, a place where God and man meet and dwell. And the altar of the temple is a sacrificial place in which sacrificial offering for sin, usually lamb or a calf, would be killed so that the sins of the people will be forgiven before they can enter and meet God. To kill a pig there is, is the ultimate insult. So Judas the Hammer was victorious over King Antiochus, and to celebrate this victory and this hero, along with the other heroes of, of, uh, of Israel, um, they have an annual feast called the Feast of Dedication, or also known today as Hanukkah. So now it is within this backdrop story theme of the Feast of Dedication and the Temple where this conflict takes place. And in verse 22, we see Jesus walking in the temple, and the Pharisees gathered around him and asked, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now it's very important to understand, if you read this question just at face value, it sounds like, it's it's not the case, but it sounds like that the Pharisees' question was an innocent, objective investigation to who Jesus is. Oh, we just want to know who you are. Tell us plainly. But that's not all the case. This question was actually an attempt to build a legal case against Jesus. You ever watched like a detective movie where the guy has a hidden wire or a recorder and he goes to the um, uh, guy who they think is a criminal and they try to ask him questions so that he would say something and that his statement could be used against him. That's what's going on here. They got witnesses. They came and said, tell us, who are you? Are you really the Christ? Are you really speaking heresy right now? And how do we know this? One, because the word for suspense in Greek is actually more literally translated to annoy. So he's saying, how long will you keep us in annoyance? That's what they're saying. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. But two, we also know because Jesus already, from chapter 8 to chapter 10, told them over and over and over and over again who he is. This isn't new information for them. This isn't merely an innocent, objective, who are you question. Look at verse 25. Look at how Jesus responds. I told you. I told you who I am. You know. It's not a lack of information. And you do not believe. This is why they're arguing the first place in chapter 8, because Jesus claims about being the Messiah. They knew. They knew. And it's really important for us to note that this was not an objective question. It was a plot to build a legal case against Jesus to gather more evidences of his blasphemy. This question was filled, in other words, with many personal agendas and subjectivity. Now, why does this matter to you and me today? Because you must realize what John, our author, is trying to tell us. He never just points the finger at the Pharisees. When he, when he speaks of something that the Pharisees are flawed in, he's always bringing it back to the reader. He's saying this, look, readers, no one actually makes purely objective inquiries about who Jesus is. With a purely objective mind, with an unbiased heart, we all do what the Pharisees do. Though our questions at face value may seem objective, deep inside, we all come with our own sets of preconceived subjectivities. A guy named Peter Berger, he's a sociologist and a Protestant theologian. He's one of the founders of a school of thought called Sociology of Knowledge. 
And he says something really interesting. He countered a lot of people that uses this reasoning against Christianity. He says, these people that speak against Christianity would say, everyone's knowledge and beliefs are subjective. They're just a product of the society. Therefore, Christianity cannot be true because people who believe that Christianity is true has just been conditioned by their society to believe that it's true. If they're born elsewhere, they wouldn't have believed it. It's all knowledge and all beliefs are merely a product of social influences, of social structure. That's what they said against Christianity. And Peter Berger said, well, okay, sure. But by saying that, don't you see that you just disqualified your own claim? Because if what you said is true, that all knowledge and all beliefs are merely a product of society and therefore not objectively true, that makes the claim you just said to also be a mere product of your society and therefore not objectively true. Right? You can't put that standard on us, not on yourself. What Peter Berger is saying is this. Sure, call us Christians subjective. That's fair. But don't pretend that you're not. We all approach Jesus like the Pharisees. We all have our own subjective thoughts and agendas and desires and goals. We never approach raw information with subjective eyes. Gray and I was talking about um, uh, an example of this. I could be good. And we talked about it. You know, uh, do you ever know, do you guys know a wife or a husband who gets anxiously upset if their spouse becomes secretive about text and phone calls? Of course, of course you know people like that. I'm, maybe we're sometimes like that. Suspicious, what's going on? You get upset. Why? Because the, the spouse might think that the other person is cheating on them, right? But do you not also know couples who, if the spouse gets secretive and, and they kind of don't want to show the husband or the wife their texts and their phone calls, the, the spouse actually gets excited and happy about it. Like, why would you get excited? Why would you be excited about your husband being secretive about it? Because they're planning a surprise birthday party. Same exact information, same exact data, same exact situation, but they both landed on two totally different conclusions. Why? Because none of us come to a raw data purely objectively. That's what Jesus responds here. Um, it, that's why he responded so directly in verse 25. I've already told you plainly who I was. I've given you the data. I've given you the information and you do not believe. You've seen all that I've done and you just don't believe. You have the information, but yet you're landing in a conclusion that is opposite to what I claim to be true. It's not an informational problem. What's Jesus showing here is showing them, look, there's something deeper. There's something subjectively so dear to you that if you believe my claim, that thing will be threatened. What was it for the Pharisees? Power and prestige. Power and prestige. How do we know that? Because just before this conversation, if you were in the sermon uh, last Sunday, we talked about the first half of chapter 10, and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being what? Thieves and robbers. What were they thieving? What were they robbing? They were robbing. They were... They were all their spiritual activities was revolving around them looking good, them getting power to show people I'm spiritual, I'm religiously disciplined, I'm rigorous. And that's all the reason was. You're thieves and robbers. You're not really shepherding people. You just want people to be impressed by you. And last week, we also saw Paul's words to, uh, to the Pharisees in Galatians 4.17. 
They, may mu- they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Because their religiosity has put themselves in a high pedestal around everybody else around them, and they want to be the heroes of the story. But if Jesus' claims about himself is true, that he is the Messiah, that he is the source of salvation, that he is the one that comes and saves us, that he's the hero, that you're not saved by obeying Old Testament laws, if they believe that's true, they would lose all of that power. They would lose all that prestige. And they will no longer be the heroes. Because that's what Jesus claims about himself and the glory that belongs to him and him alone, which leads us to our second point the divine claim that Jesus made. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just look at the totality of salvation that Jesus Christ assumes upon himself as the Messiah. This is what he proclaims to offer. This whole time, the Pharisees said, our traditions, our applications of the Old Testament law is what's going to get you points to get to heaven. Jesus' words rob them from all that glory. Let's take a closer look. No, no. I give them eternal life. Those two words are unbelievably revealing. It's I give, not you earn. He's the giver, we're the recipients. In other words, no matter how religious you try to be, you cannot save yourself. And when he gives it to you, what is the scope of it? It's eternal. I give them eternal life. This is also significant. He doesn't say momentary life. He doesn't say partial life. He doesn't say I give them the possibility of eternal life depending on how well they maintain it. I give them eternal life. And once I give it to you, he says, he continues, you will never perish. Never perish. Not might. Not it is then less likely for you not to perish. Not now you have the opportunity to maybe not perish. You will never perish because I have given it to you. Never. And you can just hear the Pharisees grinding their teeth as every single word that comes out of Jesus' mouth robs them from glory, robs them from power, robs them from being able to claim any credit. But let me just speak to those here that are Christians. If you are a Christian here today, do you hear what Jesus just said? Do you hear what you, Lord, just proclaimed? The reason that you are saved, the reason that you embrace him as Lord and Savior is because of him. And this is what he's saying. He's telling you, your salvation is not up for discussion. But look at my life, Jesus. You see all the things I've done? You seen all the bad things that I've committed? It's not up for discussion. But what if I never get over this depression? It's not up for discussion. Whoops. But what if I fail? 
What if I just grow so slowly and what if I keep making the same mistakes over and over again and you're just impatient with me? Do you really want to be with me? It's not up for discussion. You're mine. And I will never let you go. Then, then comes the kicker. How can Jesus claim so much authority regarding our salvation? This is why. Verse 19. Because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay, let's connect this. In verse 28, he says, no one will be able to snatch him out of my hands, Jesus says. Why is he so confident? Because, verse 29, because no one is able to snatch him from the Father's hand. In other words, Jesus is saying, my hand and the Father's hand is the same hand. It's one hand. I am God and I have declared you mine. Because, verse 30, I and the Father are one. You can just feel with every word there's this picture that the Pharisees worshipped of a throne and, and their own person sitting on that throne. And with every word, Jesus is just kind of peeling their picture from the throne, painfully ripping it off and replacing it with himself. Every single part of it, I have declared you mine. Imagine if this is true. If this is true, imagine all that the Pharisees would lose. They'd lose all the respect they once had. People respected them for their religious points. They'd lose all of that. They'd feel embarrassed because they have to admit that they've been wrong this whole time and they've been prideful this whole time. They would lose their livelihood. This is how they make money. This is how they survive. They would have to change the whole infrastructure. They have schools, seminaries. They have, they have, they have all, this whole thing set up to where, the, to where somehow understanding and applying the Old Testament law to your life saves you. If Jesus claims himself to be God and Savior, and this is true, they would lose a whole lot. And this is what Jesus was getting at. I've told you who I am. You know it. You're not saying no because of a lack of information. You're saying no because you just want to say no. You don't believe because you have so much to lose underneath it. So let me ask us this. For those here that are still exploring the gospel, for those here that are still figuring out who Jesus is and trying to see who he claims to be, whether or not it's true, what is it that you could lose if what Jesus says about himself is true? It might not be power and prestige. Could it be a particular cherished lifestyle that would have to change? Uh, Perhaps a treasured habit? Or maybe something deeper? Could it be a particular relationship? To where if Jesus claimed about who he is and therefore his words are God's words, then I can no longer treat or relate with this person in this particular way. And I might lose that too. Or perhaps, perhaps it goes a level deeper. I've heard many people say this. I can't believe that Jesus claims about himself is true because my legalistic parents have hurt me so much growing up by Bible bashing my head in. 
just so they can show me to be this perfect child and use me as a trophy to compete with other parents for their own affirmation. And if I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then it feels like I'm agreeing and condoning to their behavior. I don't believe him. Or I can't believe what Jesus says is true because if forgiveness is really so available to anyone through Christ, then it will then be also be available to this one person who terribly hurt me in the past. And Tazar, if you just knew what this person did, you would not want forgiveness for that person either. I don't know if you guys have been following the recent story of Larry Nasser, USA's uh, gymnastic team doctor who treated gymnasts for injuries and um, exercises, and he's just been sentenced up to 175 years in prison just recently because he's recently been found out to have had sexually assaulted and abused, I think it was around 164 woman gymnast throughout his career. And in his hearing, the judge made him sit down and listen to at least 140 girls come up, take the stand, and testify against him. You know how long just that part took? Seven days. He had to sit down on a chair and for seven days straight listen to people point the finger at him and say, ha, finally justice is done. And at the end of that day, there was a girl, I think the very last one to testify. Her name is Rachel Den Hollander. She's a Christian. Let me read a part of her testimony. Now, it's important to note, she still held Nasser accountable for what he did. She did not let him off the hook. Okay? That's important to note. But let's read the tail end of her statement and see the gospel penetrate from every part of her words. Larry is the most dangerous type of abuser. One who is capable of manipulating his victims through coldly calculated grooming methodologies, presenting the most wholesome, caring external persona as a deliberate means to ensure a steady stream of children to assault. I submit to you, speaking to the judge, that these children are worth everything, worth every protection the law can offer, worth the maximum sentence. So we, she holds him accountable, but then she continues. Larry, in our early hearings, you brought the Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacri sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sins he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love in this way. The Bible, the, the Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Un 
real. You read that and you say, if I believe that Jesus' claims are true, then I am by admission acknowledging forgiveness is extended to everyone. And I must then at some point at least want to want to want to extend this forgiveness to this person that's hurt me in the past. No, you might say. Never. Not that person. Look, I don't know what it is for you that subjectively you're holding on to and, and, and rejecting Christ because of it. And John is saying, I know there's evidences against, I know there are reasons against that you might could find, but look, we all have our baggages, we all have our hang-ups, we all have our preferences, our personal desires, our protected way of lives, our cherished worldviews. Don't pretend like you're coming to Jesus' claims and having a lack of faith in him just based purely on objective data. It's not true. At the very least, for you who is exploring Christianity, without forgetting all the other questions, of course, still explore them. But John is saying, as you continue to explore, be truly honest to yourself. Ask, what do I stand to lose if Jesus is truly who he says he is? What do I stand to lose if I follow him? Now, as we'll see, the Pharisees did the exact opposite. They kept suppressing and denying the real reasons. How? Well, as we see in the next few verses, in the same way that we often do. Point three, the way we often react to Jesus' claim. Instead of admitting the real reason of why they're rejecting Jesus, what do we often do? Like the Pharisees, here's what we do. We hide. We hide behind these things called objective proof. Verse 32, Jesus asked the Pharisees who were ready to stone him, for what sin are you stoning me? Verse 33, they answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Here's what they're making it all about. Instead of saying, I don't want to believe you because you're threatening our power and prestige, they say, I, I can't believe you. I, I just can't because it's objectively, obviously blasphemous. It doesn't fit with the Old Testament. It's, it's not because I have subjective desires to not believe in you, but my, my hands are tied behind my back. There's just too much objective data to make me not be able to believe you. He, here's what he's saying. Look, it's inconsistent with the Old Testament, the Pharisees are saying. You're just a man. You're mere flesh, and you make yourself God. Now, follow with me, because this kind of gets around a lot, but I hope I'll explain it in a clear way. See, in the Old Testament... God is portrayed as holy, 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 completely transcendent and magnificent, right? Which is totally opposite to what physical flesh is. Physical flesh is finite, it's weak, it's dirty. And the Pharisees thought to claim that these divine godly attributes can somehow unite with, with, with dirty flesh is just objectively blasphemous. It just can't happen. So they say... Um, uh, it can't it can't happen. It's not that I don't want to believe you. It's just that I can't believe you objectively because of your blasphemy. Our hands are tied behind my back. Godly attributes just can't have anything to do with human flesh, the Old Testament says. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook so easily. He keeps pushing in. He makes them admit their subjectivity. Go to verse 34 and 36. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods, quoting Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law in Psalm 82, verse 6, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? That's a complicated sentence. This is what Jesus is doing. He's turning his own logic against them. He's trying to show their objective proof is not objective proof after all. How? This is how. In his response, Jesus quoted Psalm 82, verse 6, of a time in the Old Testament where Yahweh, where God, gave mere humans, mere flesh, the title gods, small g. Okay? Small g gods. There is a time in the Old Testament where God said, I call you gods to mere flesh or mere humans. Now, why did God call them small g gods? Well, if you read the Old Testament, there are some leaders in the Old Testament that had certain roles. Okay, specifically, there's three offices, prophets, priests, and kings. Judges maybe could be in this as well, but prophets, priests, and kings are the obvious ones. And God called these prophets, priests, and kings, uh, and these judges, you are small g, in Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, you are gods. Now, of course, these people are not gods in the way that Jesus is truly God and truly divine. That's not what I'm saying, or else I'll be a heretic. Okay, I'm not saying these people are in any way divine, but it's also more than just the way we use the term godly these days. You know, when somebody, you know, when somebody is, is really humble and you say, that's a godly person, like a godly character. It's not exactly that either. He's saying these guys aren't divinely God, but, but these guys, these, these prophets, priests, and kings have divine godly attributes given to them, appointed to them by God. Okay? So, God appointed prophets, priests, and kings with godly attributes like Isaiah's prophetic ability. That is flesh receiving a godly attribute. Aaron's priestly mediation, right, between God and his people. He's the priest. He's a mediator. That's a godly attribute. And D David's kingly authority, that's a godly attribute given to mere flesh. What Jesus is saying is this. Look, read the Old Testament. There are mere humans and mere physical flesh to whom Yahweh has imparted certain godly attributes too. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't hide. Don't hide behind the Old Testament. Look at, look at it. Look at your own laws. The Old Testament doesn't demonize physical flesh as this evil thing that God can't have anything to do with. The Old Testament doesn't speak of the flesh as this evil thing that God can't give anything to. There are godly attributes that can relate with mere physical flesh in the Old Testament. And it did. Look at the prophets and the priests and the kings. Therefore, follow along. Jesus continues, if scripture cannot be broken, in other words, if God's word is true, if the Old Testament says godly attributes actually can be imparted to human flesh, then at the very least, you must consider my claim to be plausible, that I, mere human, is God in human flesh. You see? The Old Testament says godly attributes can be with flesh. Yes, it does. It does. Read it. Pharisees, you know this, by the way. You memorize the Torah. Don't pretend like... Don't hide behind that. It can. It did. You have to consider my claims to be true. Stop hiding, Jesus says, behind your objective laws. That's not the real reason. Stop hiding and we do that today as well. Let me show you. Okay. A position that I hear a lot. This is the, I'm, I'm an atheist evolutionist. And the biggest reason why I'm an atheist or an evolutionist, and I'm not religious, is because of the terrible moral events that happen on earth like the Holocaust. 
The Holocaust is just the objective proof, right, that a loving God doesn't exist. That's why I'm an evolutionist. But hold on. Think about what you just said. If you're an evolutionist, therefore you say that the strong eating the weak is just the natural way of things, is just the natural order of things, then why is the Holocaust so morally wrong to you in the first place? The Holocaust is just evolution taking its course, isn't it? It's just the strong eating the weak. If anything, the fact that you think the Holocaust is morally wrong is actually proof that the premise of evolution doesn't sit well with you. The terrible Holocaust doesn't prove evolution. It, if anything, it proves that for some reason you're not okay with the strong simply just eating the weak. It proves you're not okay with evolution. So why are you using that as if it's the objective proof that God doesn't exist? And I'm saying this as kindly as I can. It's because you're hiding. You're hiding behind this objective proof. Is that really the reason for your disbelief? Another position. I'm not a Christian. I'm a religious pluralist. I believe all religions are right. Because Jesus' claims are religiously exclusive and it's inconsiderate to other people's views. We can't just take one viewpoint. We have to consider everybody's viewpoint. And Jesus' view is religiously exclusive. And that is the objective reason of why I can't believe in Christianity. Again, listen to what you just said. By saying that you you just excluded a whole bunch of people. How? Because your view of religious pluralism has just excluded every other religious view that is not pluralistic, which is like, by the way, almost all of them. None of them are religiously plural. You've just marked 90 to 95% of world religions to be wrong because they're not religiously plural, because they don't agree with your religion of pluralism. You see? You're doing the same exact thing that you blame Jesus Christ for doing. If you hate exclusivity so much, why are you doing the same thing that he's doing or that you blame Christians for doing? And then hide behind that as if that's the objective proof for your disbelief. Because you're hiding. You're hiding behind that. That's not, is that really the real reason for your disbelief? This is the whole point of Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verse 34 and 35. Come on, he's saying. Come on, think about what you're saying. Is that really the reason? What is it really about, guys? What is so dear to you? It may not be power and prestige like the Pharisees. What is it for you? What is the thing that you know would change or perhaps even lose altogether if Jesus' claims about himself is true? Think about that. And Jesus pushes in hard here and that's why I feel like I was obligated to, although my people-pleasing side is telling me to stop. And the Pharisees hated that, which brought us to our last point, the cross through which Jesus prevails. At the end of the day, after two whole chapters of going back and forth, tangents, arguments, going everywhere, all kinds of directions, finally here at the end, Jesus shows them how inconsistent their arguments were and how subjective they truly are. And at the end of the day, they just simply don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe because they don't want to believe. It didn't matter what Jesus would say or do. It didn't matter. It didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. So verse 39, 
after Jesus pushed in, made them tear down their walls and see what was actually behind the reason of disbelief, what did they do? They just sought to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. Now, yes, here in verse 39, you see Jesus escaping from their hands, right? From their um, animosity. But if you know how the Gospel of John ends, you know that at some point, Jesus stopped running. When his hour had come, John says, Jesus, God in flesh, allowed himself to be captured by these Pharisees. He allowed himself to be publicly humiliated and scorned and eventually killed by them on the cross. Why? Why did he stop running? So that he can give you the eternal life that he promised here. He had to die so that he may give you life. He had to perish so that you never will. He was crushed by the Father's hand so that he can hold you in his forever. Look, the fact that Jesus Christ had to die for our salvation tells us that the Pharisees aren't the only ones that needed to be saved from themselves. We need saving too. If left to our own devices, we would have done the same exact things that the Pharisees did. If he did not first give his eternal life, we would have gone on and on and went through all these different tangents and arguments and all these reasons, objective reasons of why we can't objectively trust him. How did John 1 start? He didn't say the light entered into the darkness of the Pharisees. He said the light entered into the darkness of the world and the world was dark and the world rejected him. We did. But here's what I hope we see. That whatever the Pharisees held more dearly than Jesus, power and prestige, Jesus was so ready to give those things up for them. The most powerful being in the universe who rightfully deserves utmost prestige was willingly humiliated and died on a cross, killed by weak humans who wanted to hold on to the tiny little bit of power and prestige that we might have. Why? So that he could save you. What is it that you hold more dearly than Jesus? What is it that you don't want to lose if the claims he said about himself is true? I want you to see how readily he gave those things up for you. Might you be scared of losing a particular cherished relationship or way of relating with somebody? Jesus Christ was abandoned by the Father on the cross so that he may have you. Are you scared you're going to lose honor and capital? Jesus died on the cross naked, with no earthly possessions, so that he may have you. Will we, are you scared that you're going to be called closed-minded and be misunderstood for the rest of your life? Jesus was the lamb who kept his mouth shut and walked as the most misunderstood man that has ever walked planet Earth. He cared not because he wanted you. Whatever it is you hold more dearly behind that smokescreen, prestige, power, honor, control, comfort. He so readily gave those things up so that he may embrace the cross. Why? Because that is the only way he can be your hero. How ironic it is that in the midst of a celebration that honors the past heroes of Israel appears the true hero, Jesus Christ. And where did he appear, by the way? In the temple. In the place where God and man meet why? What does John want to emphasize by mentioning that here in this passage? That Jesus Christ is the true temple. He's telling us the temple isn't a building. It's a person. That's where God and man meets 
through the flesh he has assumed upon himself so that he may die in your place. Trust him. Believe in him. Behold him, your God, robed in frail humanity so that he may give you eternal life. Hebrews 1.3 He is a radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's end here. If you're here today and you've already received Jesus Christ's claim about who he is and about his salvation, I want you to think about two things. One, remember and realize why is it you have it. We Christians have no room to boast. He initiated, he gave, he holds, he died, he saved, he keeps. Rest. Rest. You may have a thousand reasons of why you don't deserve it, and he knows them all. Yet hear him say clearly out loud from this passage, it is not up for discussion. You are mine. These are the only words that's going to give you strength to hold on. Because if left to our own, we will let go a long time ago. Two, Christians, be slow to speak. Learn the value of listening. Be interested in knowing more about someone. Be a safe place for people who are still exploring. Be a good listener, not just a good teacher. Because if all you do is combat their arguments, you're just going to go round and round and round. And you're never going to actually get behind the smokescreen, get behind the wall. You're never going to actually be a safe place for them to be vulnerable to and say, this is actually why. This is why I'm rejecting him. And if you're here today and you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure out what this Christianity thing, who is Jesus, is his claims true about himself, read the Bible, look at the data, continue to look at evidences, that, that's fine. But as you do that, ask yourself at this question. Alongside doing that, ask yourself this question, what do I stand to lose if this is true? What is truly at threat here? What might change? But also, friends, remember that you are not saved by the ability to identify those things. You're not saved by your ability and strength to get over those fears. That's not the foundational basis of your salvation. The foundational basis of your salvation is that God became man and died in your place. Don't wait until you feel like you have the power to let go of those fears to receive his claim. Receive it to be true and watch him work. As he slowly pries open your fingers and replaces those things that you hold on so tightly with himself. Come. Behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Let's pray.